0: Hello,
1: this is Derek Duncan, Associate Editor for Architecture with Golf Digest Magazine. This is the Feed the Ball Podcast, and you're listening to Episode 64 with my guest, Kyle Hegland. Sand Hills Golf Club near Mullen, Nebraska, is in many ways more than just a golf course. In the collective mind of those who follow and study golf course architecture, Sandhills is an archetype, a place of immeasurable influence and unimpeachable originality. A golf creation symbolic of something more than simply what it is physically. Sandhills is indeed an historic marker, a major inflection point in modern design that launched the era of destination club and resort golf, a course that shattered the standing illusion that all the great golf sites had been spoken for. It also nearly obsoleted, almost overnight, what the golf world had previously considered to be quality design and standard construction practices. Built amid the pure, almost abandoned sand dunes that stretch for hundreds of miles throughout western Nebraska, with almost no earth moved and only the most basic irrigation and infrastructure, it suddenly made the expensive, water-fed golf courses that dominated nineteen-eighties and early nineties architecture look like contrived and arrogant conceits. Sandhill's dry surfaces and rambling natural contour ignited a previously dormant passion for the rolling ball and low-trajectory golf. For the next 25 years, architects and developers would search the world over for similar landscapes in effort to replicate this formula. Few would succeed on its level. Sandhill remains, to this day, in its own distinct category. Given such profundity and importance, it begs the question, who would want the immense responsibility of caring for such a place, of protecting and ensuring its endurance? Of course, you know who that person is. It's Kyle Hegland. The Sand Hill Superintendent, who will be entering his fourteenth season at the club when it reopens this spring. In all seriousness, as beloved and seminal as I have just made out Sand Hills to be, it really, ultimately, is simply a golf course. It is not, however, simple to maintain, but Heglin has indeed found the right recipe for turf conditions that make a playing surface that melds perfectly with Bill Corr and Ben Crenshaw's architecture, and while there's always room for tweaking and subtle improvement. He's found a way to keep Sandhills, essentially, on point. Having been with a club since 2007, canvassing hundreds if not thousands of miles over its holes and playing countless rounds, it's safe to say that no one knows the course better than Heglin does. Kyle spoke to me from the very isolated and very cold clubhouse at Sandhills, sharing in details his thoughts about his job, the architecture, and the personality of the course. Whether you know Hills or want to know about what is widely considered one of the world's greatest golf courses, this is the podcast for you. He's one of the most talented, respected, specialized, and frankly envied greenkeepers in the business. He is Kyle Haglund. Fascinated by this idea of sand hills asleep, so I and I, I can easily envision, you know, blankets of snow and you know relentless winds, and I have this image of cattle and livestock hunkering for shelter in lows. Is, is that what it's like right now?
0: That's a pretty fair assessment, honestly, Derek. It's uh, when we get moisture, which we've been very, very fortunate this year to have. Um, yeah, it's it can be really, really brutal grew up in wisconsin so i think i can judge what a winter is and uh some of the days out here are just absolutely brutal It the wind gets blowing and it's like you can't even go outside so uh, that's those are not fun days but then there's some real serene days where if the wind's not blowing and i mean it's my favorite place to be is is walking around you know out here on the golf course with some snow or even just some moisture and, and just taking my dog and trying to drink it in as much as I can without, without having to worry about golf course stuff. You know, I can just kind of say, Oh, well, what do we need to do here? Looking at things, you know, with a open eye as much as I can. <laughs> as much as I can.
1: Uh, so I'm, I really need to know what's the learning curve like to, to get settled in, in that kind of environment and live in that place year round. I know there are many people who are from that part of Nebraska who live that rancher's lifestyle, and it's 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 familiar to them. But you just mentioned you were from Wisconsin. How did it take some adjustment for you to adapt to that Spartan, open, <laughs> uh, unpopulated type of living?
0: Yeah, for sure. Um, you know, I, I think I've said it before. You know, they they interviewed my wife, who was my fiance at the time. You know, Dick Ennscap did. It was really a smart thing to. Here. They want to make sure she was going to be okay to be out here. We didn't have kids. I have kids now. I have a eleven year old and a seven year old, Riley and Carson, and, and uh, they don't know any different. I mean, they're they're full on Mullenites So uh, it takes a little getting used to. I was twenty seven when we moved up here, and for a twenty seven year old, it's a little it's a little tough. We I mean, we were in Austin, Texas, before we were here, so it was pretty big pretty big change. That's
1: a huge cultural but, shift, <laughs> it, isn't it?
0: It was my my wife's from small town Michigan. Um, I met her when I was at school. Uh, you mentioned Spartan, so it's always good. I'm a Michigan State Spartan, mm-hmm. and I you know I grew up in small town uh, Wisconsin, you know, rural Southwest Wisconsin. So it wasn't a massive change, if you will. Um, but there's just nothing like. I mean, you just you've been out here, Derek. It's just really hard to, for people to understand <laughs> how remote it is. So it just takes them getting used to. We wouldn't have it any other way. Now I mean we're just very used to it. I was at girls' basketball or girls and boys basketball last night. You just gotta you gotta really immerse yourself in the community if you're gonna make it work. And I'm a pretty social person, so that was pretty easy for me to do. And the people are really, really world class people. They're they embraced us from the, the day we moved in. You know, <laughs> we moved in on January seventh, uh, two thousand and seven. People knew us before we even got here. So that that makes it a little easier. And, you know, we were very isolated out here from our family, but we never felt isolated, if that makes any sense. And that's a testament to the people, Mullen, but all of the sandhills. You could go to pretty much any rural community in in the sandhills of Nebraska, and you're going to probably find about the same stuff because the people are just world-class people. So that makes it pretty doable. But it is an acquired taste. It is not for everyone living out here um but you know we the traveling like when you're traveling is not the funnest thing but everything else i wouldn't i wouldn't change any of it
1: yeah you know you mentioned the small town life and the people who live there i, I know they're very they are very friendly but was there also a little bit of skepticism when an outsider comes into the community i know they're nice but d- does it take do you have to feel like you have to prove yourself or uh, kind of Rub away or buff away any cityness that you brought with you. <laughs> things that things that they you know are predisposed maybe to not embrace.
0: Well, I think I think if you met me, uh, city isn't a word you put in put in front of me very often. But I think initially, Derek, I think you know in the early nineties there was a lot of real skepticism when they were getting started. But uh, Sandhills Golf Club has had such a great relationship with with the community for well now for 20 plus years but prior to me being here even so they were there that was pretty that was a pretty easy transition you know the people out here are very trusting once they get to know you they're a little they're a little oh, what's the word i'm looking for a little skeptical to start and i think they were you know everybody was really skeptical to the start they were worried about losing what they had out here which is something they love and protect which is a rural you know ranching lifestyle and uh but I think Dick Young's Cap and Clint Swoboda and, and and all those guys that have been here. I mean, I'm I've been here thirteen years and I'm the least tenured manager by quite a quite a long way. Yeah. Clint Swaboda, general you know, manager's been here since day one. Dick Young's cap obviously since day one. So they had you know, they had kinda of already laid those roads. So it was it was pretty easy for me. I'm sure there was some of that skepticism, but I I didn't feel any of that. And that's a testament to those guys and all the groundwork they did. They've been such great stewards of the community. And you know, we, we just don't survive if we don't have, you know, Mullen helping us. And, and uh, it's got to be a symbiotic relationship. And they had established that a long time before I got here.
1: You, you know, you mentioned that there was a little bit of, uh, you know, early, in the early 90s when this whole project was getting off the ground, there was probably a lot more skepticism then. But I imagine that now – That place is so unique, the Mullen area, especially because of Sand Hills is there now. And one thing I thought was kind of interesting is in the story that just came out in Golf Course Industry that Lee Carr wrote about you and Jared Kalina was you mentioned about how, you know, Sandhills is really it's almost like a company town, you know, that it employs so many people from that area. So I imagine that I thought that was a nice sentiment. And also, it must give them an extra sense of pride to be able to have this thing that, you know, basically every golfer in the world wants to come and see and it's theirs. It's right. it kind of, you know, existed forever in their backyard and it just took a little buffing to, to bring it into reality.
0: Oh yeah. No, they're very, very proud of it. Um, I, I think I can speak very clearly and freely for, I would say about a hundred percent of the people. You have a real hard time, Derek. You know, if you've been to Mullen, you don't have a lot of You know, we have a grocery store and a, Post office and a couple bars and a couple places where you get something to eat, but not a lot. But if you go in and told somebody you were trying to find me or <laughs> anybody, they would easily and happily point you to where I live. Or you'd run, you know. it's just everybody's worked for us one way, shape, or form. Whether it's somebody's, uh, you know, sister, brother, father, you know, we just don't survive without mulling the community. And I think they've raised that. And I think it's it's been a uh, you know, it's something I don't think Dick Youngskep gets quite enough credit for doing. He he was very very cognizant of that from, from day one that uh, the the community was absolutely essential to Sandhills making it, and um, it was a big it was a big deal for us to make sure that we harbored all those relationships. I think it, I think it says that what kind of leadership Dick you know has around, including him, but around him, and that that's just Something that it's a real focal point for what we try to do as a as a club is is take care of our employees, and, and they take great care of us. And uh, I, you have a hard time going to a basketball game or a football game or anything without finding some Sandhills gear pretty much <laughs> everywhere, including the kids playing. You know, I have I have uh, five girls on staff. That, you know, they three of them started in the on the varsity last night, and another couple started on the boys. So, I mean. Like I said, we just we don't survive without them, and and we love that aspect of it.
1: Yeah, Sandhill Showtime. I can see them <laughs> running the fast break, representing. So you mentioned you mentioned Dick Youngs Cap. Obviously, he's one of the modern golf seminal figures. You know, one of the the developer who kind of started it all. And Mike Kaiser's talked about how you know he looked at Dick Youngs Cap as an inspiration, and and it, it, the example of Youngs Cap and Sandhills really kind of put that spark in kaiser's mind that 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 anything was possible with golf development describe dick young's cap in, in three words if you can cuz he's he's a bit of a he's a bit of a private figure you know you'll hear interviews with mike kaiser and other developers but uh, there's not a lot about dick young's cap out in the media
0: in three words uh or more if you need it well to the point is three words but you know he's a really <laughs> honest, very honest person nice I... I he took a big risk on me. I was a pretty young guy coming up here, being in charge of, you know, what I think is the greatest golf course I've ever set foot on. And uh, he's just, uh, he's loyal. And, you know, again, I think that speaks volumes to the people around here and how much Mullin the community has embraced what we do. I think it all starts with Dick. And he's a, he is a very private person. Uh, I'm very, very fortunate that you know, I, I consider him a friend first, but definitely a mentor second. And, and you know, it's, <laughs> I get to sit up at the porch many days and, and listen to the stories about building the place, and they never get old to me. And I would love to see him share that a little more, but I don't. I don't know if that'll ever happen. Uh, he he's just a private guy, and
1: I respect that. I've heard a few st- construction stories and stories from that time period. What are what's one of your favorite stories? about how Sandhills got off the ground?
0: <laughs> well, for, for one, it, I mean, it. it's just hard for, I mean, I don't, I'm not that old anymore, but it's hard for us to even, you know, like like you and I are sitting here talking on, on via the computer right now. And the fact that there was no internet or cell phone service or any of that out here in, in the early nineties um, is kind of wild because it's a, it's a, it's a very remote place as it is, and that would have been, at least for me, that would have been pretty isolating and quite daunting. <laughs> um, one of the best stories, you know, or at least one of the ones I enjoy and doesn't get told an awful lot is you've been here before, right, Darren? Yeah. Um, right as you pull into where our clubhouse is, um, you go through those, those gates there. There's, there used to be just an old little calving shed, they would call it. And that was the only phone on property when they first started. There was a <laughs> phone. So the, Dick tells a great story of they would have to sit and wait outside of this phone. No heat, you know, barely electricity. And some of these, you know, in in the spring and fall, man, when some of these weather events come through, it can be pretty pretty tough. And the fact that that was where it all kind of started initially, you know, and then the maintenance got built eventually. But I mean... <laughs> Uh, that still cracks me up, just this little four by four shed that I can only imagine Dick and Ben and Bill overall sitting in at one point in time waiting for the phone to phone to ring, I think really encapsulates uh the leap of faith that they all were willing to take on um, because the ground was so good and and uh here they were out in the middle of nowhere. And literally. <laughs> so that's a pretty good one I think.
1: Yeah, I mean, Sandhills, it seems kind of like a little civilized because, you know, it's a golf course after all. But it's it's really incredible to think about because you drive up there and, and you don't see anything but Sandhills for, for hundreds of miles in all directions. And you're like, where, where the hell is this place? Like, what is, I mean, what, does this stuff ever end? And it really doesn't end. But to literally just to choose that section amongst all the hundreds of thousands or millions of miles and To think about being out there all alone with with one telephone, eventually, and a shack, eventually, you know, and it Bill, it reminds me of I've heard Bill, you know, he's mentioned it to me in another other interviews and podcasts about sand the building sand hills, and, and he says it wasn't fun. It it was not a fun job as you might as you might think it was, you know, considering how good the land was, but it was a lot of pressure and a very difficult build.
0: Yeah. Oh God. Yeah. No, he said it. He said it many times, and, you know, I, I also consider Bill a friend, very fortunate to, and, yeah, I've heard those stories. And, and you know, <laughs> like, I think he gave that, at one of those talks where somebody's like, "Ah, it must have been so much fun. And he's like, yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't that much fun. Partially because the weather is just so, it's hard out here right now with modern conveniences. I can't imagine being a settler that came out here and contained acted out out here in, in the 1800s. Oh, uh, no I, No kidding. I wouldn't I would have made it. I mean, I just wouldn't have made it. And uh, it's just a, it is a very, uh, it's like you said, it, it it's a great piece of property that I don't think, you know, Ben and Bill get all the credit for the golf course and, and they wouldn't have it any other way. But it was it was Dick cat that found this little piece of property and this little valley. So I, you know, to the untrained eye, people who haven't been out here every day of their lives, it's a, actually a pretty unique a pretty unique little spot to have some of those smaller rolling hills that we have that go through the lower valley. And you know there's a great story with Dick and, and the, the land management guy who found this place and they went up to I don't know, the we call a Tyre Iron Hill the place where they put a tire iron that they thought they would never find. And Dick saw that valley that the golf course for the most part sits in and said, yeah, we'll take it just based on that. And I don't think he gets quite enough credit for, he does claim a little credit in his book. That is kind of a modern myth that only a few hundred have been produced. Um, right. and he does take some credit for finding that valley. And I think he should get all the credit because the more I'm out here, the longer I've been out here, it is a, you know, I've been everywhere in the sand hills and it is a very unique little spot where you know, you have just nice, smaller features um, because it all looks like golf. But it's it's tough to out here to find those smaller areas. You know, which is what makes up kind of sixteen and and one and 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 you know down through seven and eight and and six and five. You know that that's pretty. Sp- I, I wouldn't have seen it. I'm sure. So I, I think I think he would hesitantly take credit for that. But it, it's it's a pretty cool little piece of property, and for, for for many reasons. And you know, sometimes it just works. It was just the right place, the right time, and, and uh, he was smart enough to recognize it and, and, and basically staked his entire reputation and, <laughs> and financial you know livelihood on that this is going to work, and that's why it did work, as far as. I'm.
1: Well, for sure, I guess that goes partly to explaining why he only built one golf course out there. You know, with all that land, you'd think, well, where's Sand Hills Number Two? If he were ever going to build a Sand Hills Number Two, or you were going to build it, what part of the property would you build it on? And you just mentioned you've spent so much time out there, and even at this point, you might know that property and those sand dunes better than anybody with all the movements you get over them. Do you see another golf course out there somewhere, and where would it be?
0: Man, I'm I I love golf, and I love golf architecture. I'm certainly no architect, but I would love to find somebody who's been around our property more than me. So yeah, I think that's a fair assessment that I probably know the land better. But what, what's really interesting with the guy like Bill Coor is the fact that you know he spent so much time out here because they had they weren't quite as big as they are now, obviously. So they they spent more time out here, and Bill especially, he still remembers, God, he, his memory is ridiculous. I mean, we can talk about bunker stuff, and uh, he knows every little wrinkle and rumple everywhere we go. But, you know, I think initially they they, they had talked about building a second course uh, early on. And I'll, I'll get the dates right or wrong a little bit, but I, I want to say somewhere after 95, you know, before 2000. And, and it was my understanding, again, this is my understanding, and Bill or Ben or even Dick could... could correct it if, if I'm wrong, but they couldn't find a routing that worked that wouldn't break up the original, and they just they just weren't willing to break up the original 18. Um, And I, I respect that. I, I really do. I, I think, you know, you never know what's going to happen. I don't see us doing anything, but you never know. Um, we're pretty proud of what we do. We think we do it pretty well. Um, you know, you've been out here, Derek, so our emphasis on golf and playing golf and, and and the game of golf and the camaraderie that's around it and who's good and the beer, beer's cold and the people are great and the golf's really good and you think we do that pretty well. Does that change somewhere down the line? I, I can't really answer that. We definitely have enough um, land to. I'm sure like I'm sure Ben and Bill can find something. I I think it's pretty easy, Derek. And you've been out here to you can see individual holes, but you know I don't think Ben and Bill get enough credit for being able, everybody goes and sees that constellation map and says, well, shit, yeah, there's 130 plus holes. And, and I love that constellation map, but trying to get it all to work together, that, that, that was, that's pretty impressive. And I, the more I'm out here, the more I realize how impressive it was to be able to to really focus on what we have here and, and how they came up with that. You know, and some of the, you know, you'd think with 132 holes, you could just go out and grab another 18 piece of cake. And, you know, with, with the routing that we have now eliminated, probably half of those holes already, just from a logistical standpoint. So, I mean, your guess is as good as mine. I'd, I'm always up for new fun stuff, but I, I don't see that happening. In
1: the yeah. I, I, at this point I'd be a, a little surprised, not that I have any, in, you know, knowledge inside information, but it seems, you know, leaving well enough alone would be the, the right call. But do, do, I'm curious, though, on this topic, it was a little bit of an artful dodge until the end there. You finally got around to saying, <laughs> saying it. But uh, do you spend, you, you know, your job is on the golf course to take care of the grass to create a playing surface. Do you go out in the other dunes and in the non-golf parts of the property that all that vast expanse? Do you ever go out there and look around?
0: Oh, my God, all the time.
1: That's where you oh. go with your dog and walk around and get some peace.
0: Well, you know, some of our stuff, and and from a logistical standpoint, we have we try to keep visual things off the golf course. So we have trails and what have you for getting heavy equipment. Like, let's say we're working on bunkers or stuff that that doesn't imp- like so that at the porch you see everything. You see everything on the golf course, which is an amazing little spot and a place. It's one of my favorite places in the whole world for many many reasons. But it also shows every little thing too. So we try to make sure like. You know, cart tracks and especially maintenance stuff is off the path, so it takes us out and about some of that stuff. And you know, one of the you know Mike Clayton, who who I've had the fortune to meet and I've known via internet for quite a little while, but I met him this this uh, winter down in Australia. He has that thing that holes that aren't holes, and I'm always out there. So i like, we could. One of my favorites. I still think there would be a great little redan off of the back tee on sixteen going dead north there's a great little spot there so Mm i'm i'm always i'm always doing that but that's just the i think that's pretty easy to pick and choose a a hole you know just one hole out of anything so
1: i imagine there's so many great green sites out there but like you mentioned before getting getting entire holes out there you know without having to knock down dunes would be the hard part
0: uh yeah well you know they they kept you know they the the stuff that's on the perimeter of the of the golf course is is usually you know especially on the on the south side is, is much more severe I mean, it gets pretty big up around you know the putting green and as you stay to the south of you know of 10 11 12 that's that's kind of this big dune this big rolling dune all the way across there so that's that's not very interesting you go over that that dune and then down into the river valley and there's a lot of good little land there's, there's great little land um kind of behind the putting green and down towards the driving range um that i that i love to look at and and we have lots of stuff that we have to go back and forth so it's pretty easy to pick up some of that stuff but i think the best land and i think bill would would tell you that the same thing is is kind of above 16 or to the north of 16 there's lots of good little there's lots of good land right there yeah uh i I have a skid loader track, you know, trail that I have to, to, for me to get to those big bunkers on the left is 16. Every time I go through there, I'm like, oh man, this is a great little par four right here. And it's, it's, you know, I, I think our whole thing, you know, hypothetically, if we were ever going to build a golf course, it would never involve doing any more than what we did the first time, which would be basically till up the land, plant, you know, we don't want to move a bunch of dirt or, or soil, sand. So, that's how I always look at them. So yeah, I think there's plenty of holes up there. I daydream all the time. I, I, I probably should just take a club next time and bang it around.
1: I'm surprised you haven't.
0: <laughs> no, I have not. Oh, that wow. Is, I've, uh, there it's, it's funny. I think, um, you find a bunch of golf balls up in there. I, I think partially because people have a tendency to see something from a tee, you know, whether it's 16 or 17 or anywhere. And, to help us hit a tee shot off into no man's land because it looks like a golf hole, so you're like, "How does the ball get up here?" <laughs> but um, some maybe that maybe there's some people out there doing it before I ever got here, which I wouldn't blame them. I would do the same thing.
1: Well, on this topic, what did you know, because I, I know there was a big learning curve. With getting sandhills off the ground and figuring out what grasses worked and how to maintain it, and especially given the harsh climactic conditions and the soils, all this was new in the mid nineties. Nobody had ever tackled this in the United States before, and there may not have been any analog to it anywhere in the world, really. So there was a big learning curve. Now I'm imagining, you know, you've got it as dialed in as possible. Maybe not. Maybe there are some some things you can continue to do better. There always probably are. But what advice would you give an architect who's who would come into that same Sandhills environment now and, and build a golf course? And there have been other golf courses, you know, a couple just down the road at Dismal River and the Prairie Club and elsewhere. But what, what have you learned at Sandhills that you could explain to an architect who might be working on a site like that for the first time?
0: Oh, and, you know, it it, 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 you know, I'll give him a lot of credit. Early on, there was, there's just no place like the Santos to try to grow grass, man. and, and it, I don't care who would have been here, whether it was, you know, Doug Peterson or Old Tom Morris, um, it would have been a challenge just because it's, it's such a unique place, um, like, you know, environmentally and climatically, it's just, it's just different. So, so you know, you kind of had to take everything. You know, I've been here 13 years, and uh, I, I think it's highly debatable if it's as good as it'll ever get. We, we want to always be trying to get better. I, I never want to try to grow grass; I always want to try to maintain a play, you know, a plain surface. Right. And I think that's that's key. So I think initially they, they just didn't they nobody knew. So we lost a bunch of grass the first couple of years, partially because of winter water and desiccation, and and things that just the United States for a, a whole just doesn't doesn't deal with you know so it's, it's hard to find anybody that you know you could even say hey we've done this or something like this so it was just all new and and they've done a, a really good job and we think we've we keep refining it you know what i, I would tell an architect to do is just the the dunes and the and the native grasses are so fragile you just if you tear it up it's it's tore up and it's going to take a long time to get back to you know lack of a better word native. You know, which is, you know, North America's last natural grassland here. So we're very, very cognizant and we, you know, we started working on bunkers quite 10 years ago here, really. Um, and it sounds like a pretty easy process because it's all sand and you got all the sand in the world, but we had to be really, really diligent on not making a footprint that would impact everything else. It's so something that you'd see with big scar and, and we don't want to take away from the golf course. You know, I'm a, I'm a fan of taking one step backwards to take two forward but this was kind of a different animal where you know one step backward was a pretty big step backward so you know what i've said and i've talked to many of those guys and i and i love that you know i think katie does a great job at dismal river and, and brandon those guys up the prairie club and you know O'Gill and his team are building the course just north of us and obviously my love and affection for jerry klein and what he does at, at uh, valley Meal and Josh Mayhar at Wild Horse, and, and these guys do great things, and guys and girls, and, it, and it's just, it's just so unique. So I think we all, we all know each other pretty well. We talk quite a bit. I'm probably more vocal than anybody else. I've, I've always been a social guy, so we try to share, you know, any information we can. But it's pretty. They're all just so different, you know. It's just a very, very different experience, even from here to Valley You know, Jared was out and watering you know fairways yesterday they were they got almost 60 degrees we never got out of the 20s we're only 200 miles away from each other sandy sites so that's a big difference um just be a steward of the ground and anything you don't have to tear up they'll tear up and that's probably dark. from a grassing standpoint you know it's just got to be what you're trying to what you're trying to produce and what you're what you're looking for from a playability standpoint, I, I'm a big, big believer in these Lomo bluegrasses. If you've been a wild horse, I, mean, I don't think anybody does it better than Josh Mayhams from day in day out. But you have fescue, Jared has fescue. Um, they have some Colonial bents up at the Prairie Club but they have mostly fescue. That fescue at Dismal River and it worked good. It's it's just you know it's it has some real issues in the winter. It can get beat up. or just you know it just doesn't tolerate it quite as well as some of those Lomo. That's you know, it just depends on what you're trying to do and how you're trying to do it. So how much,
1: how much pressure did you feel when you got that job? This job? Yes. Uh, I was dumb.
0: I I was 27. So I, you know, I didn't, I didn't, it sounds silly to say it. I didn't feel like I had a lot of pressure on me. Um, until ignorance is bliss, right? Yeah. Ignorance is bliss. I, I've never lacked confidence in myself, which sometimes gets me in trouble and sometimes is a benefit. But, uh, the first day we opened, and my first year, 2007, and we start having people roll in here was a big gulp, you know, for me. I was like, "Oh shit, here we go!" And from then, you know, the, the great thing about Sandhills is just how it's run. You know, Dick, Dick is my boss, and I deal with Dick only. I don't have a greens committee or anything like that. So while I struggled, or maybe I did, maybe I didn't, but the things I did struggle with, whether it was grassing or, you know, if we had some winter kill or whatever, you know, Dick always had my back 110%. And that allows you to to get better and improve and and, and really uh, try new things. He always really challenged me to not do what I what I was taught to do <laughs> you know, be prior to being at Sand Hills. So we made some errors, we made some good things, but you know, Without his support and the support of the membership, you know, I probably was really ignorant and thought I could do this job. You know, now, 13 years later, 14 almost, getting ready for season 14, I still feel very humble. You know, I, I've never lost sight of the fact that I get to look out my office window and and have sandhills in my backyard. It still means something to me. And, you know, it just kind of gets in your blood. And as a 27 year old, I I was just probably ready to prove that I could do something. And I was uh, probably a little naive. So it took me a little while to get it figured out, but we think we're going in the right direction. We're still trying to get better and and, uh, just keep moving forward, I guess.
1: What was the worst disaster or conditioning calamity that you had to deal with? Is there anything that, that really made you nervous?
0: Well, it's just everything is so unique out here. Um, you, the winter is just our most difficult time. It's, it's just like days like today. It's, it's cold. we got plenty of moisture, so I'm, I feel pretty comfortable. But I don't really know, and nobody really knows. I, I, I don't care where you're at. When you, If you've never seen grass go completely dormant from lack of moisture and, and cold temperatures, it, it makes your butt tucker a little bit the first, <laughs> first few times you do it. But you don't really know until grass, until it starts warming up, so we think we do a lot of great things in the spring and the fall, and we think, you know, it's a big game of attrition out here, and we think we get a little bit, you know, incrementally better every t- every year. But we could still have a winter where, I mean, it only takes a few days in some really tough climate, and all of a sudden you're, you're killing grass, and you start pulling tarps off, or you start looking at fairways, and going, like, oh, shit we're gonna have a lot of grass we've we've had some years where we've we've had some real tough winter kill on some fair fairway areas we haven't really lost much grass on on greens um we tarp those and that helps for us but you know it's it could it's probably similar to being in the mid-atlantic some of those areas where the disease pressure is so hard at times that you sprayed and done everything you could but you're still you still kind of Anything could happen, and you don't control any of that. So we just try to. All right, you got to have a plan. So if we lose a bunch of grass, you got to have a plan. You got to move forward. You got to be ready to say, "Hey, we're going to get this better. We're going to get ready to rock and roll." So that's always our biggest concern. We've had a few years where we've lost some grass and, and fairways, and you know that's just that's pretty easy to deal with. You just tell them what you're doing, why it happened, and. Keep plowing forward, and our membership is pretty good about it. But you know, they expect it to be perfect out here, and that's what we want it to be. So, it's yeah, it's something we deal
1: with. From an architectural standpoint, you know, Sand Hills is so varied, and it's it's got so much complexity to it. What continues to surprise you or impress you about it specifically, when you're out there every day looking at it? Are there are there parts of the golf course? That just continue to give you inspiration and to reveal themselves in brilliant ways.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I, I I am not a golf architect, but I love golf architecture, and you know I think you can, you know, you can bring a novice of golf out here, and I, I'm I'm a firm believer that I don't. It, it's like it's like building architecture or even art. You know, I don't. If you're on something truly great, you don't have to explain it. it it's you can tell anybody, and they'll be like, you just understand it. And I think that's a fair assessment of golf, great golf. I've been really fortunate to be on some really great golf courses and some really good ones too, but great is just a different thing. And I think the things that really keep coming to me, and it's probably just my lack of knowledge, is, is how impressive I've, – I've, I'm always impressed with the routing of, of the it, – it just, it just flows properly. I don't know how else to say that. You just – you know, and, and some of it's because I played it eight trillion times. Um, it just it feels like you're, that's where you're supposed to go on the next hole, and I think that's really impressive. But you know, it's the subtle stuff. Like I, I think five gets a little you know, um, overlooked at times. It's one of my favorite holes out here, and it's I, I just absolutely love that green. It's just there's not much there, but like what is there it is just so devious that spine through the middle of that green is just absolutely diabolical or something like that little that little mound in front of 16 green is just it's just it's just so smart i'm i'm not smart enough i wouldn't have been able i wouldn't have been smart enough to put that there but those are the things you really appreciate i at least i appreciate the the little things that when you play it a bunch of times you're like man i'm always dealing with that little tiny thing that you know i think it doesn't take a good picture you know it's something you can't just but it's something that really affects the way you play golf all, all the time and and so we you know it's it's pretty pretty cool place to go out and try to learn each day that's for sure 5
1: 5 is an interesting hole because i would i would venture to say that if you polled most players after playing that golf course for the first time when they got off and said rank rank your favorite holes 1 through 18 5 would probably finish toward the bottom but I have a feeling that, and I've heard this from other people as well, it's one of those holes that, like, over time and repeat plays, and you've played the course a gillion times, as you said, it, it, it's, it's the holes that have the most subtlety to them that uh, have the greatest long-term impact. You know, it's easy to, like, you know, big wow moment holes you know the the memorable holes like you know 16 is you mentioned the little feature but like everybody remembers the you know the big bunkering on that and how it slides down the hill uh, you know those are impactful moments everybody loves 17 it picked it you know they've seen it in photographs and it's picturesque but it's those holes where that that don't really say much to you at first meeting that often have the greatest depth to them. And it's because it, it's subtle and you have to play it over and over again. And, and five seems to really encapsulate that.
0: No, I totally, I, I, now I will go on the caveat that I, I only want to play that from the back tee that goes across. I, I love it's that. It's like angle. over the
1: fourth green, right?
0: Yeah. Go right across four green. Yeah. And angle there for, you know, it's something that Ben and Bill, you know, out here that I really, really love is they don't, they don't, tell you that you can't hit your driver, but you better hit it online if you want a real advantage, you know? And five, if if you hug those bunkers on the right-hand side and hit it between the fairway bunker and those two bunkers on the right and get it up there, it is a massive advantage in the hole. And you get rewarded for hitting that risky shot. Now, if you go in those bunkers, not good. Uh, And I just, I'm with you, I just, I love five. I just, I'm infatuated with that hole. And, the more time I spend on it, the more I like it. And it's one of those, you know, the green is just, I just, I'm so impressed that they were smart enough to just leave it on the ground. You know, you just don't see a lot of that anymore in, in golf architecture. And it's its just right there. It's nothing fancy. It's not the thing. It's not the big bold, you know, rolls that you see on two and three. And some lot of the green, moves. like you said, it's not the thing that you, initially see. It's very easy to come out here and remember 18 and 16 and 17, and, you know, because it's just so in your face. But five, uh, five I have, have a really hard time finding a hole I like better than five.
1: Yeah. And, and again, like if you only play it once or twice, you're only going to see one or two pin placements on it. And you're not going to understand that green. I, I've, I've only seen one pin placement on it. So that that's not a hole where I have any ability to appreciate the complexity of it and the subtlety of it um what's a what is a green out there that doesn't do that is there, are there are there certain greens that that um are are just kind of what you see is what you get and you can understand it more quickly than other holes
0: yeah i i honestly think the the more the more bold greens are are easier to read and again that's my interpretation it's interesting
1: caddies always say that too you know, like obviously, if you can see the way to, you can obviously see this putt's going to swing four feet to the right. Sure, sure.
0: And I, and, I and, and and again, I'm saying that just for saying this. I'm not saying it about any other place, but our bolder dreams, I have much more confidence making a putt. You know, like I I think five, if you're on the wrong side of the spine, is, I, I mean, I'd, I would love to find somebody who would putt more than I do. It's really time in the morning when I go up to set up the golf course. I'm, we're, you know, my guys and myself, we're putting at every one of those pins to make sure. That's a very vital thing that we do. We take setting up the golf course very, very seriously out here. And because we want you guys coming out and having fun, we don't want any silly pins. But it is a pretty fun side benefit that you get to go and putt around it. But, I I mean, if you're on the wrong side of that spine on five, it's it's a really, really difficult putt to make. And nine is, you know, you're sitting there at the porch, there's not that much movement that is the hardest green to read. I mean, it just is. I I feel very uncomfortable <laughs> reading most putts. You know, I have a general tendency that's going to fall away from you if you're on the, you know, the south side of it. But I just don't know. Whereas greens like you know, two and three and you know even eight, where it's got that big pitch, I feel pretty comfortable in those greens. So I don't know if that's if that's really answering your question, but I I, I I think the more subtle stuff is, is just much more difficult. And, and you know, for out right, right here, I just try to get the. I'm not a great putter. I just try to get the distance right. Now, I think a lot of people overread things. You know, especially on great golf courses, they think there's just 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 get your get your pace right, and you're probably you're probably better off than trying to make that thing break three or four different ways. And, and that's just
1: my take. You know, it's it's not difficult to sing the praises of Sandhills and talk about all the, th- all the great characteristics and even the genius in, in and aspects of it. It's much harder to be critical of it. What, does Sandhills have a weakness?
0: Um. Yeah, for sure. I think every, you know, I've been pretty fortunate to go around and, and see at least most of the great golf courses in the United States. And it's very easy to appreciate the great stuff, like you said. And, I think anybody with a critical eye, you know, if you go to Cypress Point or if you go to National Golf, you're always trying to find what is its weakness. And, you know, with Sand Hills, I think early on, we really missed the boat with our playability issues. You know, some of those shots Ben and Bill were, were wanting us to hit were just not there. And it wasn't really anybody's fault. It was just trying to figure out maintenance, what worked and what didn't work. Can you
1: give an example? Um, you mean of shots that weren't. Yes. You hit? Yeah, shots um, yeah, that maybe for whatever reason the shots weren't working.
0: Well, two we were just talking about two green and, and two green, if you remember, is these huge contours around it and it had when I first got there, and I'm not taking any credit for this, this was conversations Ben and Bill and I had, there was just native grass that got all kinds of water from irrigation, literally seven, eight yards off of that hole. And whether you hit it right, left or long, it was you could lose a ball in that, you know. And and the beauty of that green is that you don't want to hit that green. If you hit that green from 160 or 70 yards in, if you're playing from the proper keys, it's going to go over that green, or it's going to cascade to the right or the left because there's all these contours. And losing a golf ball there is just, oh, it's just, it's the worst. Not to mention that you couldn't then hit a fun, you know, this green offers all these awesome little contours to play it back. You know, one of the great things about two is if you're left in the pin even if it's on the left-hand side of that big swale, is to play it up off the right-hand bank and let it come down so you don't have to put a bunch of spin on it. There's just a lot, all these fun options that you can go away from the hole that allows you to be creative and fun without having to hit some you know, punch wedge thing, you know, you use a putter. And those options weren't out here, you know. And it bothered me for a while, and it took us a while to really kind of figure figure it all out. But we think we got most of that figured out. We're always trying to get a little better, but I think that was a real negative, you know, impact on not, not just the golf course, but the enjoyment factor of coming out here and playing golf that there is not a lot. I enjoy more than watching somebody hit a shot that they don't normally get to do, which is, you know, be creative and use contours and ball roll and watch the ball kind of go do this. There's something about watching a ball, roll up and around that I don't know, it's just it's, it's, it's enchanting to me so that I think initially was was a weakness and, and some of our weaknesses that we have now you know we, we could talk from an architectural standpoint or we could talk from a maintenance standpoint but we we are always trying to be cognizant of what those are and, and and we worked really hard on the bunkers had gotten really really penal because of the wind and the erosion and you know, I just I was pretty comfortable that they that they weren't just a wedge out of some of these, especially fairway bunkers. And we've worked really hard on getting those where they need to be. But it's something we always have to be very, very cognizant of is the fact that it can just move and you know, we wanna make sure that you coming out here playing golf are hitting the shots that Ben and Bill wanted you to hit in nineteen ninety five. And we think we get that right a lot of the times. Um you know, big weakness for us is we're out here in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> you know? I, it's 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 not on the way to anywhere, is what I say. Um, so you have to make a real cognizant effort to, to get here. So when you get here, I think you have to have you have pretty high expectations and you won't match those and meet those at all times. I don't know. Did I dodge that question? No,
1: you I, get nailed that one. That was good. Do, do you, <laughs> is it exhausting to feel requests to play from non-members or, or people who just want to come out and see the golf course? How is that? Does that take up a lot of your time?
0: <laughs> uh, man. Yeah. Pro, a, a little. Um, I've, I've been America's guest. I get to go to a lot of cool places because of the place that I'm at, not because I'm cool. And I understand that. And I've had lots of people be very very gracious and courteous to me and allow me to play some of these places that some little dummy from southwest wisconsin would never get get the opportunity to do so i always try to be very cognizant of that but it can be quite daunting at times there are years where it's better than others but i would say i probably on average get a hundred plus requests a year just myself so I just I can't do them all. I would love to do them all. I try to be as cognizant as I can and try to and be as gracious as I can about it. And it is uh, something I take very seriously, though. I, I, I really wish and, and, and hope that anybody that really wants to see this place gets that opportunity. It, it, we are a private club. We have, you know, some strict guidelines of, of access for many, many reasons. But we certainly are not exclusionary by any means. You know, Dick set up this great little thing when we first started. Um, and I think more so to probably just drum up some interest, but it, it kind of initially started just in Nebraska. If you were from Nebraska, wrote a letter yeah. to the club, you know, you, you were going to get, you, you, you have to pay for it, the round, which is our our rounds are pretty modest, moder- moderately priced, and they were really moderately priced, you know, back in 95. And I think it was pretty smart, you know, because you have a hard time going anywhere in Nebraska and if you have a Sandhills hat on or something, somebody's going to say something to you. It's just the way it is. I think that's pretty cool. And I don't know if that happens if we're just this very elitist golf club, which we are not, um, that just says, no, nobody can come in. But at the same time, you know, if you're my guest, I have to play with you. (laughs) And uh, I, I also have a job to do. So it is something I take very seriously and some things that it, it bothers me that I can't get, you know, I can't have enough time for everybody, but I'll, I'll I, I try each year to to be as good as I can. That's the
1: it. curse of being <laughs> one of the best courses in the world. You know, everybody, everybody wants a piece of it or he wants to experience it, which is fine. I mean, why wouldn't they? Um, oh,
0: that sounds terrible. I don't
1: take yeah. that. As, no, no, I, I don't. Take- I don't. I'm just, I'm sympathetic to your position and, you know, just having to respond and, and, and to even, you know, Deny a request uh, must be a difficult thing, and to have to do it more than once is, is even more difficult. But, you know, it's, that's the that's the devil's bargain of Sandhills.
0: It is, and, and I, w- I will say this. Uh, I There is not much that I get. A, I don't get much greater joy than watching somebody who's truly in love with, whether it's golf or golf architecture, a combination of both, or from a maintenance side. That has dreamed and wished and hoped to come out here, and I get to allow that to happen and help be a part of that and see the joy. Of, that's that's pretty that's a pretty cool deal. And I I don't take that lightly. That is a real fun thing that I get to do, but at the same time I I, I can't do that every, every day. Um, you know, we're only open basically a hundred days of the year, so it's uh it's a balancing act and i've probably done less and less as i've gotten older because my you know i just have i have kids and family and stuff and you know i've got other things to do
1: does it frustrate you that the sandhills has to accommodate golf carts
0: um no i think i think that would be short-sighted of me to say that there are times um we we, we do have to especially when we get hot um which we do get very hot in the summer um that we just have, we have to water fairways a little more than I would really love to. I I love what Jared can do down at Ballyneal and show the footprints across, you know, the grass that's, that's wilting. I think that's awesome. Um, but that's just not who we are. You know, we, we have, if you're out here, you're probably going to play 36 holes unless you're, you know, leaving that day, 36 holes plus. So, we, we still get a lot of walking people and it's mostly in the morning and then they ride carts and Hey, Hey, if I want, if I'm out here, I walk 99.9% of my rounds out here. But if I was out here all day long playing golf and it's 112 degrees, I'm going to want a cart. Um, we think we're pretty much got it dialed in that. We're not lacking playability at, at those aspects, but you know, if it's 112 degrees out, I can damn sure guarantee you we're going to have to water fairways tonight in some way, shape or form. Um, it would probably be doing some hand watering as well because if you got a golf cart that drives through grass that hasn't had water in three or four days, it's probably going <laughs> just, <laughs> just to
1: die. Just to be straight, it's going to Well,
0: well and, and to circle back with your question about when we first started, that, that was just stuff they just didn't know. Like, you know, Corey Crandall, the first superintendent here, who's a good friend of mine, somebody I have the utmost respect for, who owns a golf club in Ogallala called Crandall Creek. Now, um, you know, he tells this great story about, you know, well, I don't know if it's Ben or Bill or whoever, who you know, like talk to these guys overseas and, and you talk to the guys at St. Andrews and, and you know, all these people that had had experience going to rescue. And he's he, he is like, I'll oh, let it get crispy as a cracker, mate. And that's fine and dandy if the, if the high is, you know. That's a pretty
1: good accent, by the way.
0: Oh well thank you I've said this story enough that, I've made that but and I just like he's you know hey if it gets crispy as a cracker out here and it's 112 that is dead grass period there's it's it's just a different animal so it took a little time um, to kind of figure that out but it is what it is we still don't you know I would I would never say we're a wet golf course um, ever but I would love to also in the same hand, get as dry as Jared is. We, we, we get that, definitely that dry around greens and, and surrounds, but, you know, we just have to accommodate car traffic. That's the way it is. And that's okay. They, we, uh, they take good care of me. I'll try to take good care of them. And if it's, car, if it's golf carts, uh, I'm not going to tell somebody that they can't take a golf cart.
1: I'm going to come back to the maintenance issue uh, briefly in a moment, but let me just go. Going back to the architecture one more time, because I don't think we can ever go back to that enough. Is if you had to pick uh, one category, what does Sand Hills do best? What is it strongest at? Is it part the par three holds, the par fours, or the par fives?
0: Oh, that's a that's a lovely question. Um, I think it's very easy to say the par threes. Um, I really like the par threes, but I would say I say I'd say it's the par fours. I just think they're really really strong all the way across. It's just not a real weak hole out there, I don't think. And those are a little, I think it's, they're a little harder to get right all the way across. You know, sometimes they can be, you know, add-on holes or something. You just get you from this spectacular spot to that spectacular spot. And, you know, like we were talking about five, I just, I just love, I love, love the par fours on the front. They just, you know, and I think as anybody who's been out here, the front is is, a, is probably two strokes easier than the back. Um, it's you you just remember the back nine a little more. You know, it's like you said the bold it, it's just a lot bolder on the back, but the front and the car floors in the front, I just think are just I, I think it's all pretty low class, I've played a bunch of those places and I just remember so much of the car floors out here. Some of that is because I've been here so so long and I think I've walked everything and I probably appreciate it help as much as anybody but you know I think those are a little harder to get right or get really right you know and I think Ben and Bill just did a great job and especially you know the short par four seven and eight are just yeah I could play two holes just in a loop constantly and you make plenty of birdies and you make plenty of bogeys and that's that's what I think is great about golf you know
1: I think from a, a participant perspective or, or somebody if you're going to study architecture or, or you know look at different golf courses it seems like the hardest par 4s to get right or or to make memorable or to to get get them to where they're really engaging are those mid-length par 4s you know something from like 390 to to 450 you know long par 4s you're going to remember those one way or the other and and you know generally they're longer they're going to be situated on a bigger piece of land so that piece of land may have elements to it that uh it sticks in your memory or, or have a huge impact in the way the whole plays short par fours we always remember those uh it's those mid length par fours that are as you said so hard to get right and balanced and Sandhills is great with that you know the stri- uh 11 and 12 for instance are kind of a put in that category um and they're they're so unique and so and so different and uh it, they they really that really that run from from <laughs> 7 through through 12 is pretty remarkable just uh, one different look after another all par fours
0: yeah well I think you know and you mentioned it and what i what I got sidetracked on there is what I think is so smart that it's very easy to 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 miss especially if you're just out here a couple times is 10 11 12 all generally run in the same direction and nine honestly you know the green is oriented in the same direction but they all are such different holes, but they're somewhat similar distances, really. And you have all, you know, it, 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 it's a really encapsulate sandhills to a, to a tee. You just have all these different shots that you're, I wouldn't say required, that you're allowed to hit. And, you know, like 10 can just be, you know, if, you, if you're playing 10, 11, 12 into the wind, which is pretty common in the afternoon, it is just brutal. And, but brutal in different ways like 10 you can if you can't hit the fairway on 10 or 12 I don't know what to tell you I mean you got so you're in the fairway and it's pick your poison are you going to try to hit the heroic shot or are you going to try to hit something smart and they're just they I play a ton of match play with, with you know my closest friend out here is our general manager Clint Shibota, and we play a ton of match play and that's so they're just awesome match play holes because you can just crap it down your leg or make birdie. And I really, I love that aspect of those par fours. And that's that's why I said the par fours. I think it's pretty easy to say the par threes or even the par fives because there's only three of them. And and they're all spectacular in their own way. But the par fours are really, I think, what add the depth and the breadth of the golf course. And, and again, like you said, it goes seven, eight, nine, 10, 11, 12 are all par fours in a row.
1: And just, yeah, and different look after different look, uphill, downhill, short, medium, long, just fantastic. Um, so uh, you mentioned a minute ago you were kind of America's guest when you travel around, and I imagine in the greenkeeping circles you're you're a popular guy. And also for what you do, people want to know how you do what you do. Are there things that you've learned and developed at Sandhills that you think are applicable to almost any golf course anywhere?
0: Uh, well, first, yes. I, I love being America's Guest. And, and <laughs> I, for one second, don't think anybody would let me in if I was just a Chicago. And it's because I'm at this wonderful place. And that doesn't bother me one bit. <laughs> so I, I, I love playing golf. I, you and I have had a small conversation about it. I can't understand why some golf course superintendents don't play golf. I don't think you have to be good but I have a hard time believing you can be a really elite superintendent and not play golf. I'm not saying that they're not out there. I just, that's not how I would work. And I really enjoy the game. I really do. Um, and so it's pretty fun. I get to come to work at some place I love and then hopefully I can play golf when I'm done too. Um, if, if my schedule allows it, but from, from aspects that we think can go across the country, you know, uh, it, it, it's just graph Derek. it's not that it's not that complicated it's, it's really not the thing that we think that seems like we,
1: it sometimes <laughs> well, at least to someone you know not in the industry
0: it's, it's not that hard um but, but we what we think we do and it, and it ties very very hand in hand with our weather is we think we're really really good decision makers we have to make good decisions out here because there's just so many variables in the weather um, whether it's from a hot end or a cold end or, it's just, it just, you just never quite know what you're going to have. And, you know, I think superintendents get pretty regimented on, on schemes and routines and, and doing things on certain days. And I, we just can't be that way. Um, and I think that helps us deliver a, a better playing product. You know, our, our goal is always playability. Always. Now, with that said, you know, we don't, we don't have a lot of, uh, Pressure, so it's not like we're spraying fungicides and stuff like that. But we're always going to try to make the choice whether what we're doing, you know, middle of July or December first, that allows us the best opportunity to, to present the golf course at its peak from a playability standpoint. That, you know, it, can it be beautiful as well? Yeah, we try, but that's not our first and foremost thing that we're trying to do. Um, we want, we want little discrepancies and indeficiencies and little color changes here and there. And, you know, monostands and and clean looks are just not what we want. We don't want that from our bunkers. We don't want that from our fairways, our greens, any of that. And and, and that is is something that that we think we do pretty well. We, it's not easy to do. You know, it, it's, it's not easy to make everything look like it's all natural. You know, I don't think, uh, especially out here. So we think we do a pretty good job of that. Now, are there things from a progress standpoint that can travel across the country? You know, it, it's it's hard to say. I think everybody philosophically, it just depends on what club you're at and what, what you're trying to do and what the membership expects. But if you're trying to provide great playing conditions and, and hard, firm, and fast conditions, yeah, then I think we've got a lot of stuff that, that goes across the country. And it was, it was one of those things I, I was – this is going to sound like a humble brag. I was I was in Australia this, this December for the President's Cup, and I got to go down there and work with those guys at Royal Melbourne. That's exactly what we want to do. And, and there's just not a lot of that in the U.S., and, it, and I'm, I'm certainly not judging anybody. It's just, you know, we're more philosophically oriented to what those guys are doing on the sand belt of Australia than than most places in the United States. And the guys abandoned do a good job. And I, I'm not just... From, um, from a general consensus, you know, so it was pretty refreshing to go down there and, and just have a, a lot of long conversations with those guys about what they do and what they're striving for. It was, it, was, it was a lot of fun.
1: How plausible would it be for just kind of an average daily fee or municipal course or a, a resort course that's not, you know, located on a sandy coast to implement the type of turf conditions, something similar to what you're striving to, to produce?
0: I think it's I think it's very plausible and, and you know it's going to cost you less money. Uh, you just have to be okay, depending on where you're at. That's a general, broad statement, and there are all kinds of places where you could lose a bunch of grass, I'm sure. But you know, you got to have a superintendent that's a willing to carry out the program and just has a plan. And you might, you might you might get it on the brink of death at times, but that's you know we want the golf course on the brink of death. Um, I think we just are so accustomed in the U.S. to think that if things are just starting to get around that it's dying instead of like, hey, we've we got a long way to go before we ever really injure any turf. And dormant turf is awesome turf to play golf on. And, you know, I, I, don't, I just don't think it's that that challenging. And, I, again, I'm not reprimanding anybody that doesn't do that. You've got to have a membership or an ownership or that that's what they want to do and they got to be okay with saying, Hey, this is what we're trying to do. And there's lots of places that are, you know, I think it's getting more and more popular to do it, you know, and that goes hand in hand with, you know, like overseeding in in the transition zones and in the South is, you know, I was in Texas in the early two thousands where everybody did that. And, you know, and it's just getting less and less um, because the playability is so much better. It's, it's on the playoff dorm and turf and, you know, hit those shots that are not just, you know, ball splats, stops two feet, hit another shot. That's not fun. I think it's just a fun thing. You know, I, I, I I think you sell it as a fun situation.
1: Yeah. So how, how pervasive is the drive to produce lush green grass in your profession now? I mean, are you, are young guys who are coming into the field are they, are they, is it as lush and green being emphasized or do you notice a movement more toward, you know, as you said, you know, bringing golf courses on the verge of death. Um, and, and I know it has a lot to do with, with the club you work at, as you just mentioned, or your clientele. It's, it's a harder sell to get the American golfer to embrace those conditions if they're not used to it, or they haven't really seen it uh, in effect and, and seen how you can play that. But I'm curious if, you know if that that drive toward toward greenness is is still being taught
0: <laughs> uh yeah I would say it's probably still being taught basically because you know it you gotta you get hired to do a job and you have to perform and it's you know it's just this this uh stigma that we we just as Americans just love and, and people call it the Augustus syndrome I think that's a little That's a little unfair to Augusta because they do a great job. You know, that's what they want and that's what they're trying to do. And everybody sees that. Um, I I think superintendents have just gotten so good at at their jobs um, that it, you know, it it just feeds this whole beast. where You have to be okay with saying, yeah, no, I can make that green, but it's not going to be the It's not right for that area. Or, you know, yeah, we you know, that's that's not that's a that's a tough sell at times. And you get, you have to be willing to want to do that as well. And, you know, if you're a golf course superintendent in the United States, you're probably making a nice paycheck and you got a family that depends on you. And, you know, I'm not trying to tell you to shake up your livelihood, but it's got to be something you really want. I got really, really lucky, Derek. I I went and worked for a superintendent, uh, Doug Peterson, down at Austin Golf Club. I was just, I didn't know anything about anything. And that's just how he did it. And I just, you know, it's, I'm assuming it's like golf architecture. I just don't want to do it any other way. And I wouldn't be happy if I was at some club that required me to have it looking green and lush and, and worried about the cart pass being edged and the bunkers being perfect. I'm not saying that there's anything wrong with that. I'm just saying that's just not my philosophy. So I think you have to kind of find a place that you're right fit and, you know, I got pretty lucky more than one time. So I'm out here doing what I do. And it's very easy for me to say that when Sandhills has had a long standing reputation of doing just that. But it wasn't always like that. It was a little wet and very thatchy and lush for when I I got here. It was it it needed some work. And it doesn't mean that I was the only one that could do it. It was just a good fit. I was a good fit for here and, and vice versa. And I had it helped that I had worked for, you know, at Austin golf club, I've worked with Ben. That's his place. And I had had long conversations about what we could do to improve this place before I ever got here from a playability standpoint. And that's what they wanted. So it was very empowering and much easier for me because who's going to argue with Ben Crenshaw about what he wants at Sandhill or Bill Kuhl. It's just, it's a very easy sell. And I, and I have a big personality as it is, so I have no problem saying, no, that's just, that's not how we're doing it. Um, with that said, you know Dick youngscap same thing. He 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 knew what he wanted and how we were trying to do it. And I think just in the past they had had some people say that, you know, you just can't do things like that. You'll kill everything. And you know they took a chance on me, and I was pretty comfortable that we could we could do that. Um, so I just think I, I think I'm circumnavigating your question a little bit, but it just depends on what the club wants. I'd love to see more of these public courses. You know, really. Save a bunch of money, and more importantly, save a bunch of water because that's where we're moving. Especially in the future, we're just going to have to by just being okay with with uh, fairways that bounce and roll, and and that's that's fun. That's 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 the best stuff. So I, th- I think we're getting there. I think it's a it's just going to be a long process there. I, I just do.
1: I can see how it's almost antithetical to uh, a greenkeeper who's come up in certain environments to to not use all the instruments and uh, medicines at his disposal to make it, to make, you know, grass grow thick and and green. It's almost like, you know, the, the bad side of the healthcare industry, where doctors have so much medication at their disposal, and they just keep trying one thing after another on patients. When uh, that's what they're, you know, kind of paid and trained to do, and maybe they need to like back off and you know let let the body, you know, not to turn this into like some kind of weird conversation, but the, you know, I, it's if you have all this uh, this technology available, it's it's tempting to use it, and it, it takes a lot of restraint, as you're saying, to back off and and let let nature, you know, do what nature does.
0: Well, we hope so. And when I got here, they were, I mean, they were spraying fungicides on greens every two weeks during the golf season. I haven't sprayed a fungicide since I got here. And I said that, you know, I didn't know anything about being up here other than the fact that it was very dry and arid. And, and I'm like, what are we doing? And it, 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 I'm, I'm not trying to turn it into me being smart because we've already established that I don't think you have to be the smartest cat in the world to be a golf course superintendent. It's just being somebody like, that doesn't seem right. Like, why don't we try not doing it first? and and if we think we got to do something let's figure it out but i just i was really to bet my well my career on the fact that I didn't have to do that and fortunately it's worked out pretty well and you know and it goes hand in hand you mentioned our article about our internship and you know we'd love to get more people and show them what we're doing and, and hopefully press that along and there's lots of guys that are doing great things and you know hopefully it just keeps you know I think some of it is just going to be out of necessity I think we're you know, I think we're pushing forward in whether you're in California or Arizona, water rights and regulations and restrictions are coming, whether you want them or not, from a financial standpoint or just a lack of resources. So I think that'll push us a little bit in those directions. But, you know, Green's superintendents, are they're a pretty smart bunch of guys when it comes to being creative, and, and they'll figure it out. And so, you know, I just happen to like that you know that old school way of playing golf and and we think that's the best way that for us anyways and that's what we'll just keep doing up there as long as they will have me out here i guess
1: well let's let's say uh let's say mr young Cap uh shows up tomorrow and says kyle everybody it's been a great run but we're shutting it down there's not going to be any more sand hills you all have to go get a new job sure where do you go now and let's say you can't work in the Sandhills anymore you can't work at Ballyneal or any place like that and not to not to uh, you don't have to say a specific guy's job that you want but would going into like Los Angeles or or Boston or something at at those old Parkland courses uh, would that have any appeal to you or what would you want to do with the knowledge that you have uh, earned at Sandhills
0: (laughs) well um, you know to be honest I would that would really break my heart if that all happened but break a uh, lot of people's hearts (laughs) um, I don't see that for for happening anytime soon or or ever hopefully but um you know i think it's it, it so it's an interesting question Derek, and i appreciate you asking it it my wife and i we both love the beach and then we moved to nebraska which is kind of funny and and uh, <laughs> well it's kind
1: of beachy in a way just there's just no <laughs> well, ocean big beach, there used to be an ocean a there a long time ago
0: i should say we like the beach where you can also go in the ocean so yeah. We always try to go to the ocean. You know, that always sounds fun. I mean, I don't know. I, I don't know if I could live in a big city anymore. I really – it doesn't mean I couldn't live – you know, there's – it's not Los Angeles. I, I I love San Francisco. I think that's a great area uh, um, for golf. I mean, I I, I gauge everything by golf, Derek. That's just the way it is. My wife accepts it, uh, unfortunately or unfortunately, that any place we go it's say, oh, there's something – You know, some, you know, New York and and San Francisco are are probably the two of the coolest places I've been, you know, from a collection of golf courses. But philosophically, I don't you know, I don't know if I could live in either one of those areas Um, for me. If I if tomorrow I couldn't be at Sandhills, uh, oh, that would be tough. Um, It would be fun to probably do like a new construction. There's not a lot of it. I would just uh, but. Your question about a part like something old that needed a bunch of work and could do something, that would be a lot of fun. I have a, a good friend, um, Pat Sisk, who, who left a world class job at, at Milwaukee Country Club to take a, take a club, take a job out back where he grew up in, in Massachusetts and, you know, b- basically do that. Just restore a, an old polish, an old gym, which is pretty awesome. And that sounds fun. I don't. I don't know. Shit, I don't know, Derek. I, I'll tell you what. I won't do is not be a golf course superintendent. I. I. I just, I'm still young enough. I love it. I want to go out and, and do that. And I know I won't be. At, I wouldn't be at some place that required green, lush grass. That just wouldn't be a good fit for me.
1: I could see it be a, you wanting to take on a challenge of going to a club that's known for. For lush green grass, and trying to convince the membership and the, the committee that you know, we have a, a better way, we can present this surface in a more compelling manner than you currently have it.
0: That's a that's actually that would be fun. I have uh, I'm a big personality, so I, I like challenges like that. I like having conversations with people, um, especially. I don't have any problem saying no. You're wrong. I, I don't agree with that. We're going to be this way. With that said. I'd have to have the right leadership around me to, to do that. But yeah, that'd be fun. I mean, it's, it's, it's so hard to say, uh, you know, Josh Mayhar, my good friend at wild horse, you know, he has this great line that, you know, you can't get happier than happy and we're pretty happy out here. And I hope, I hope your little story never comes true any especially anytime soon. But, uh, um, if it did, then yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll figure something out. Um, <laughs>
1: Sand Hills has has moved so many people emotionally, whether it's an architect or people who visit it. You know, I ask at the end of these podcasts for architects to name their favorite modern course, and uh, of the sixty some you know who have asked, you know, Sandhills is running away with the competition. I had it tallied up at one point; they're probably garnering you're garnering probably 25 or 30 percent of all the votes right now when you go out and play and you said you've played around quite a bit and you were in australia recently what moves you what makes you emotional on the golf course what are the must-haves for you to fall in love with a a place other than your home course
0: you can put your hands on the ground and it's firm and dry that that makes me pretty emotional i know that sounds pretty simple but it's not a real common attribute in a lot of places whether you're in um so i was such a, a like a really spiritual experience and i'm not a spiritual person to be in the sand belt of australia it just felt like i felt like home down there you know it felt like i was here i'm, I'm in bowen nebraska right now it felt very similar and the people were world class and you know but from a golf course standpoint what moves me is you know i think we I mentioned a little bit earlier, you don't, it's the stuff you can't describe, you know, and it's, it's the, you know, many courses for many different reasons. It's very easy to step out on, you know, the ocean holes at, Cypress Point and, and get moved um, spiritually. Honestly, it, it's just a, it's an amazing place or step out on the first gear national golf links and go, this is just, this is golf and this is what it's supposed to be. And you know, (laughs) you kind of pinch yourself a little bit. I try to pinch myself out here. I I still get that out here. That's going to sound very homery and and kind of dorky, but man, you know, some of my greatest times out here are are just playing what I call a church night. Um, Maybe my wife and kids had stuff to do and I'm out here. I just play at six o'clock and I play nine holes in an hour and the sun's going down and, that's, that's what, that's what golf is all about to me. And, you know, but you can have it in other ways too, you know, like just the way the club is run at garden city, like just the way the people, it's just like, there's just something there. I like, I can't put my fingers on it. It's not tangible, but it's, it's pretty awesome. And it's, 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 uh it's just something you got to feel. And I don't, I don't know if that's, you know, that's not the same for me as it is for you. Um, And that's okay. But there's, there's just some of those places that are just, that's what I'm looking for. Like you just feel like it's, that's what you're supposed to be there doing. And, and you feel attached to the golf course, if that makes any sense.
1: Mm -hmm. Speaking of dry bouncy turf, what place impressed you, The what American course impressed you the most in achieving that that isn't, you know, located in your part of the country, not in the Sandhills or in, you know, not Prairie Dunes or Ballyneal or anything like that? Was there a place you can think of that you thought, wow, they're really doing it right and I wouldn't have expected this maybe?
0: Oh, I, I, I expected it wholeheartedly, but man, the Cow Club was point, that place was, that was when Thomas Bastis was still there, It was the last time I was there, but they have a new superintendent he's doing a great job as well his name is, is slipping my mind right now but there's just, there is um there is a a lot of places that that really sets the, the entire tone, if, if I think they got the maintenance meld, right? and again it's my personal opinion, it's nothing that has anything to do with anybody, but you go to, like, Cal Club would be spectacular if it was wet but when you're there and the ball's bouncing and there's brown turf and whew, that's pretty good. That was that was a special day, and I can't wait to go back there someday. But there's plenty on the East Coast too. I mean, I've been National Golf Links was just on point. It was perfect when I was there.
1: I would ask. I'd love to ask you the opposite of that question, but I'm not going to.
0: <laughs> no, I'm not going to do that. That seems disingenuous. I think.
1: I, I think that we could probably. Um, Come up with the list, I think it wouldn't be too hard. So you know you're the caretaker of of arguably you know one of the top courses in the entire world. And so that obviously you take a lot of pride in that as as well. and we've talked about Bill Cor and Ben Crenshaw. How often do the guys that that actually built the golf course come by? and stop in and see what's going on. And, and do you ever get to observe kind of close hands, their looks of, of satisfaction? I'm sure bill comes around more than anybody else, but do you ever see like Dan Proctor or anybody like that? Dave Axlin come through and just kind of look around and take it all in.
0: Man, it's, it's, it, as we talked about, you know, all the requests you get to play. One of the beautiful things about being at Sandhills is, is I think all those guys that you just mentioned, all have a very real love for this place. It has nothing to do with me. I just get to be a nice side benefit that I get to meet and inter- you know interact with these guys. Um, Bill Bill's usually out here. If he's not out here every year, it's every other year. And Ben's out here at least once a year. Um, and I, you know, fortunately, I know both of them and consider them both friends. So whenever they're here, I spend time with them. Whether it's you know when Bill's here, we usually just walk around the golf course and talk about. Little things, more than anything, um, and we go from there. Whether it's a bunker edge or a grass line, or you know whatever or we just sit and chit chat, and and that those those are those are pretty special days. I've got to spend a bunch of time with them, you know, both out here, and I've picked their brains probably too many times. But It's also pretty special that you know I get to know you know Dave Axelin and Dan Proctor, and, and and actually Dan I don't think is. Ever been up here since I've been here? He was building the par three course at Austin Golf Club that I when I when I was there. So I know Dan really really well, and and Dave same thing. Dave's been up a couple times, but you get to meet all these great you know architects and young and aspiring you know the Blake Conants and the Jeff Mingaves and the Riley Johns and and all these guys and just it's just so fun. It's so interesting to get to know and you know and meet these guys from a personal standpoint. And then watch them go do great things at other places. Um, it's a nice, it's a really nice benefit about being out here for sure. No,
1: no, no doubt. It's yeah. It's like um, it's like an I can imagine it's like an academy in a way, you know, or, or a spot that every aspiring architect or even an even a, a seasoned architect would come and and take something away from sandhills and and maybe go use it or, or that just kind of goes into their thought process of of how they work in their own work. Um, That's gotta be pretty uh, amazing, but it always amazed me when you hear the stories of, of when like Dismal River was built and allegedly uh, Nicholas never came to see sandhills. And, but uh, there's probably a lot of people you could name and a lot of people who who haven't been there.
0: Well, I can, I can talk directly about, you know, Dismal River and, and that was before I was here. Uh, that uh, he they were just opening when I got here, right? And he, he did not come out here, and that's that's unfortunate. That's that's just from a, I don't know how you could, the way the crow flies, we seven miles apart, and that's silly. Um, on the entire other spectrum, you know, Tom Doe building the Red Course, you know, those guys were building that in 2012. You know, they had. Quite an eclectic group of guys out there, and between myself, but most of my my wife was eight and a half months pregnant with my my son, who's now seven. Um, I was not nearly as available as I would like to, but Jerry Kalina, who's obviously a bailiwick now. I mean, we we hosted every one of those guys. I mean, it, 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 we felt it was what we had to do, not because they were going to learn something, but I mean, that's just that's how awesome the industry is. The people are just great, so you get to meet all the you know Angela Moser and and uh, you know which is always fun to see women involved in especially in the golf design aspect of things. But you know Blake Conan and Clyde Johnson and Brian Schneider and it was just I mean it's 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 almost surreal. You can't even really believe that all these people come out here and, and that you get to know them and it's it's pretty pretty fun to to. I do realize that they, they they know who I am not because I'm important or special <laughs> because I'm at a pretty cool place and I think that that pays dividends you know like like Gil was out here Gil Hans is out here two or, two or three times this last year they're building a golf course about I would say it's about fifty miles north of us just north of the Prairie Club called Capstone Ranch and you know and his son-in-law and yeah, They just, that's thats what we want to be about. It's, it's what's beautiful about the golf industry, whether you're growing grass or building golf courses, is it, it's a pretty small world, you know, and it's a pretty cool little place to be in because most of the people that are building golf courses are pretty passionate about it. And that, you know, so you can sit up at the porch and drink a beer and, and tell stories. And, and that's, that, that's a pretty cool perk of what I get to do for sure. And... Uh, yeah, I just yeah. I pinch myself many times. It's fun to watch these guys go out, you know, guys that have been here many years ago that are, you know, making big names for themselves. You know, a guy like Kyle France who is filming, you know, help shaping at the prairie club and you know, he's doing big things now and you know, it's just it's a lot of fun.
1: Yeah. And they all they all come and drink water from the temple. <laughs>
0: I don't know about that, but we, we try we try to be as friendly as we can. Um, obviously, I, I've had very very few interactions with anybody that was anything less than than an awesome person to interact with, and and that's that's pretty special, and that's why I love being in the golf industry. It, it's it's a it's a small tight knit group of of people, and it's a lot of fun.
1: Well, as we as on that note, as we start to to wrap this up who would be your, as far as awesome people, who would be your ideal foursome? Could be anybody alive or dead. Who would you like to play golf with maybe for your last round or your next round for that matter?
0: Oh, my last round or my next round anywhere. Your ideal here. foursome. Sure. Anywhere you want. Oh, it, this is, this is a good question. I haven't, I have not I was... asked this
1: question since I think episode one, so I <laughs> thought I dusted off.
0: <laughs> to be honest with you, I would just, I would take, uh, I've, I've played with Ben, so I've, Played with Bill. I've never played a round of golf with Dick Youngstaff, if you can believe that. Wow, really?
1: So I'll, how often, I'll take. How Dick. often does he play?
0: Well, he's he played a lot early on in my career. And it just you know, just he's a he's a night owl. I am not a night owl. So we will we'll take. I'll take Dick, and now he just doesn't play. His arthritis in his feet and stuff. So he hasn't played for the last couple of years. So I would take Dick Youngstaff, and I would take Bobby Jones. Hmm. And I would take my dad. My dad passed away 13 years ago. That'd be pretty tough to beat right there.
1: Was your dad uh Bobby Jones fan, or what's the connection to that? No, he kind of got me
0: into the game. He was not much of a golfer, but, you know, some of my biggest memories of my dad um, was just playing golf. Him and I had pretty bad golf, but we played hmm. golf, and that'd be a lot of fun.
1: What's the toughest pin at Sandhills?
0: Oh, the toughest pin at Sandhills is... Front left, number one green. That is a ball buster of a start. And if you get above the pin, you can't really get it super close, and if we if the if it's super windy, you just can't put it up there. I mean you just can't. So if it's a nice calm day, we love to put it there because it will you will know you're at Sand Hills for sure. You have a we think a less chance of putting off the green than you did many years ago, but you can still put it off the green, and, and uh, that will that will kind of shake you for a little while. Um, another tough pin is anything on the right hand side of eleven. It just it's just really tough to get the pin and you know get a ball hit shot in there.
1: What's the, uh, on that note, what's the over under on when you see guests come and play the course for the first time, what's the over under on how long it takes them, whether it's holes or or rounds for them to learn how to play the ball low along the ground, use their putter, do do that kind of thing. I imagine most, even though they know about the course, do uh, a lot of people probably show up trying to just smash the ball in the air and compress it and get it spinning like they do at their home course.
0: Yes, they still do that. And it still cracks me up. We, we watch a lot of golf at the porch. You know, it's a great gathering spot because I can see where all my guys are and stuff. So whether it's a starter or or, or it's Clint or I sitting up there and you see a lot of golf on nine green and yeah, it's just like, Hey, just put, get your putter out, man. That's the best play. And you can have those conversations with people. I have played many rounds of golf, especially enjoy our, you know, we require our interns. You got to play golf. And Some of them are not very good players and some of them are real good players. I really enjoy it when they're a good player and you're like, Hey man, that that's not the point. Don't hit that wedge here. And they still hit it. And (laughs) it's like, Hey, uh, how how long is it going to take? And eventually, but it takes longer than you think it does. I, I, you know, it's just, I think you're so ingrained in it. You know, it's, it's fun to watch that process. And then, you know, we just try to do it by like, you know, I'm going to hit this shot and see who gets closer. So,
1: if you could resurrect one dead architect to co-design a golf course with, who would it be?
0: <laughs> Man, I love Allison McKenzie. His, you know, I, but there's just something about Rainer. I don't know. I just, I love his stuff. I've not seen enough of it. I would love, I love the fact that he wasn't a golfer and it would be, I need to a, see more Rainer stuff. I'm my eyes a little more drawn to the McKenzie. I'm a real big fan of, of that look, but I don't know. just, i some about Rainer. I'll take, I'll take Seth Rainer.
1: Uh, what's the, what's the top Rainer course you've seen?
0: Oh, oh Shore Acres is a pretty tough beat, mm-hmm. um, but people are going to hate this, but I, I really think Chicago golf is a Rainer. I know they say it's McDonald's, but it's mostly Rainer. So it Chicago Golf's better than Shore Acres. If I'm picking uh, my opinion only. I get to say it's a rainer.
1: So. I'll go. Yeah. I mean, I, th- I think there's, I think you're set on safe ground to say that. I mean, <laughs> you know, somebody's going to get pissed off, but
0: <laughs> for the most sure, part. I'd love to see more of this stuff. I've I'm, I'm not seen like Yeaman's Hall and I'm, 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 I'd love to see Yale. I've not been up there um, on my short list. Someday I'll get up there.
1: Okay. Finally, what's the best modern course you've ever seen? That's not Sandhills or Ballyneal. I'm going to take oh, Ballyneal off the table, too.
0: The best modern course I've ever seen that's not Sandhills or Ballyneal is Friarshead. That is just, I just love that place. Uh, it is so good, and I think they've done a really good job of they just keep kind of getting it better, if that makes sense. you know. I wouldn't say they're constantly tweaking it, but they're not afraid to make adjustments to make it Incrementally better instead of leaps and bounds. You know, I think sometimes we try to do things and we make this big, broad sweep. And they've just done a lot of. They've done. They've been tinkering with that place for a long time. And Kenny Becks and his team, they just do a great job. And you know, Bill Jones has been there forever, and, and the place plays right, and it's pretty tough. Pretty tough to beat Pryor's Head, I think.
1: You so uh, I mean obviously you know Sandwells as, as well as anybody in the who's ever lived. <laughs> Do you see any any correlations or similarities between Friar's Head and Sandhills?
0: Oh yeah, I think I think you know I think everybody has their own little bit of style and 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 pizzazz, if you will. Whether it's on a doke or a Coor and Crenshaw, and you know the thing the thing that I really loved about Friar's Head were you know again I'm not trying to be anticlimactic, climactic, but it's the holes that not everybody talks about that that I really enjoyed, you know. As you're walking down and away from everything, I just thought they were really smart holes. Um, maybe they're not as big and as bold as, you know, fourteen. And, and and as you walk around that big dune and all that, but it's it's just great stuff down there. And I I really felt at home down in there. You know, more than anything. If that makes sense.
1: Yeah, and those holes were created too. I mean, that kind of yeah. That's a high compliment.
0: No, I, I just really, you know, and, and it's, it's easy to love those, you know, 17 and all that. And, and, and it's, it, and rightfully so, but I, I really just liked how, you know, it, it felt like you're out playing golf where you should be. And, you know, I think Ben and Bill get that, you know, there's a lot of guys get it really right. You know, I think Ben and Bill do that. And, you know, probably I maybe have a little more gear towards them just cause I'm, I'm right here and I've, I've basically been on their stuff for a long time so I, maybe I'm just maybe a little more akin to that but I, I really love the, the routing and, and the imperfections of that place
1: Kyle Hegland, while still young has already become one of the preeminent superintendents in America and is a student of golf course architecture as well as turf hey if you can grow grass as well as he does in the sand hills of Nebraska you can grow it anywhere you know, Hills is such a remarkable place. It's remote, eerily quiet, and yet it's full of this like energy and buzz when you arrive there. It's quiet, yet alive. It's distant, and yet so constantly present and relevant in our architectural thoughts. It's such a contradiction. It's the astute high culture of architecture set against this long tradition of laconic Western pragmatism that reaches back hundreds of years. You know, even though most... People will never have a chance to play it. Sandhills has lessons that it can offer that could really be applied to almost any golf course if we would learn from them. Primarily and most importantly, its insistence on dry grass and a firm playing surface. Kyle mentioned how more courses could go further in stressing out their grasses and actually, in and in doing so, if they did it in a, a practical, intelligent way, I think most, if not all, places could actually save money and create a ground that produces more roll and bounce and which in turn makes the golf course more fun and any golf course for that matter could play more dynamically firm turf opens up the possibilities of more and different types of golf shots it provides the ability to play the ball high if you want or low and get the ball rolling long courses play shorter and if when they play shorter and play fast more skill sets can compete as long as those people learn how to play low shots accordingly and use the ground to their advantage I just think in that way in a, in a better and more interesting world, if more golf courses strive for that, we'd all have a little bit of sand hills closer to our homes. So anyway, thanks to Kyle Heglin for joining us and sharing all that. That was brilliant. You know, Pete Dye passed away recently and it occurred to me how often he's come up in these podcasts, it really in, in almost every episode. He's a, he's a touchstone. He's a central figure, uh, the world of architecture, modern architecture seems to revolve around him and if you'd like to hear more thoughts and different observations about him I encourage you to plunge into the Feed the Ball archives and past episodes in particular, do a search for P.B. Dye or Tim Liddy or Jim Urbina or Brian Silva many people have spoken about him but those four in particular as I recall, spoke incredibly beautifully and elegantly about Pete, his architecture his ideas and what he meant to them so, uh, if you're looking for more information and in kind of a, a stroll down memory lane, that's where to find it in the Feed the Ball archives. Also, some bookkeeping here. Bookmark talkinggolf.com to stay up to date. On golf's best roster podcast, subscribe to all the podcasts there, including the Good Good Podcast, State of the Game, Talking Golf History. Uh, subscribe to this podcast as well. Do that at Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you download and stream. Give me a follow on Instagram and Twitter, I'm at FeedTheBall. And check in regularly now with Golf Digest and GolfDigest.com for more of my writing on architecture and architects. Thank you all for joining me, I really appreciate it. Thank you to the Sundogs for the music. And until we get a chance to do this again, adios.